Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. You are probably waiting for me to move on from these painful monologues about ignorance, cultural chauvinism, settler colonialism, and the ultra-nationalistic tendencies of Western universalism, which wraps its bombs in the values of the Enlightenment in precisely the same manner that Constantine cloaked his war chariots in the sign of the precious and life-sustaining teaching of the cross. Well, keep waiting, because I am a Palestinian. I, too, am waiting. But I am not waiting for you. My hope is in the teaching of the Lord. In my life, I have seen immigrants of many backgrounds deny, suppress, distort, or turn from their history, language, culture, and identity. I have seen the vapidity of Western universalism in all its forms personal, institutional, religious, and systemic, colonize people's personal and collective lives, their marriages, their children, their extended families, their churches, and their neighborhoods. It ridicules, shames, invalidates, patronizes, ignores, slanders, co-opts, condemns, and ultimately disappears their connection to the past and to each other to facilitate human commoditization. Beauty, grief, death, the struggle with our own mortality, Chris Hedges explains, and the search for a life of meaning, love, the capacity for transformation, Those forces are ones that make us stop and become introspective and think and look within ourselves to see who we are and where we're going. And that's what any totalitarian state seeks to crush. And yet we kind of blissfully have checked out. The cult of self is, in biblical terms, a form of idolatry. Everything is about you. Whether it's the worship of power or money, it all goes back to the self. It all goes back to creating little monuments to yourself. All investment into a particular goal of self-aggrandizement is a kind of pathetic attempt at self-exaltation in a kind of, maybe even a subconscious way, at immortality. We have replicated the patterns that past civilizations and collapse underwent. An elite that is no longer connected with the real. Thanks be to God, dear American, everything is not about you. You are not God. You are but a sheep in his flock on his land. 
What Father Paul taught us years ago in his book, Land and Covenant, is now being shouted from the rooftops by Palestinian clergy and scholars. The land belongs to God, not to any nation or religion. It is you in the United States who have much to learn from the Palestinian people, not the other way around. Not only the Native Americans, not only the African slaves, but each and every immigrant who steps on these shores undergoes a process of being colonized, of a systematic erasure of history that disconnects all of us from the answer to what ills us. Everyone knows it, beginning with your children, whom you cynically label Gen Z so that you can exploit them in your marketing plans. But I have news for you. Rejoice with me. Your children are no longer Gen Z, for what was lost has been found by God. Your children are Generation Palestine. Because as long as you don't talk about it, Hedges continues, you'll believe that you're the only one. Your friends are doing okay. There's something wrong with you, not something wrong with the system. Something is definitely wrong with the system. I am a Palestinian Christian. No one may tell me otherwise. I exist to resist. And scripture is my shield and my buckler. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 511 of the Bible as Literature podcast. One of the important things that Father Paul has stressed and that we've stressed on this program, Richard, over the years, it's not a new concept, is the interconnection between hearing and action. There is no separation between the two. Just a couple episodes ago, I remember you and I talking about hearing being passive and listening being active. What's important to stress in that distinction is that when one listens actively, you are adding your complexity and your mental activity gets in between the message being delivered, and your footsteps. Now, I don't want to get too much into cognitive science. That's not my intention here. But when someone issues a command, obviously brain function enters into the processing of the command. There's always brain function when there's a physical response. But there's different types of brain function. When a basketball coach yells, shoot the ball, or when a baseball coach yells, swing. When you've been practicing a physical motor function, there is an automatic response to that command. You don't think about swinging. 
you hear the command and there's an automatic response. You hear something and there's an automatic action based on the command. You have no control. It's passive. The coach shouts something and because you've been trained, you immediately take action on what you heard. There's no active listening and then a decision to act. There's the passive act of hearing the command and then you take action. I just want to say this at the outset, Rich, because this is something that will come up later. So I'm trying to tie together concepts that we've hit on in the past that will become relevant in this parable that we're about to unpack here in the Gospel of Luke. And this issue of being ordered and being commanded comes up a couple of times here in the parable using different terms in Greek that have different connections in the Semitic. So it's just something I want to lay the groundwork for right away as we begin today's program. I was listening to a rabbi who is talking about how everything begins with Torah in the first five books, and I just think how peculiar it is that Christians don't want to spend as much time in those first five books, because it really is the basis of everything. Everything grows out of that. Now, one reason I can tell is a practical reason, which is that, you know, everyone loves the first half of Exodus, and the second half of Exodus is boring. Leviticus can be really boring, but as Father Paul has been demonstrating, without understanding what's happening in Leviticus, what do you understand? You have to understand these things. If we're not spending our time just reading and getting to know the content of these books, we don't have this connection. In Torah, when you have leprosy, then you have a priest who is checking to see if you're cleansed, and if you're cleansed, thank God, you go and you offer a sacrifice. But it's not once you're cured, then you don't go for a sacrifice. Torah is trying to train us in this teaching so that it becomes an automatic action like you're talking about, Father. But that's why, you know, you don't just go shoot one basket, now you know how to shoot. You have to shoot thousands of times, and once you've shot thousands of times, great. But if you're Michael Jordan, you have to shoot a hundred thousand times. The reason why he was good is because he shot so many times. He didn't stop having to practice because he was good. It was the opposite. The one who's really good at Torah is one who repeats it more often, not the one who says, I got it now, Father, thank you. No, if you got it, then you know you can't stop listening to it. So I'm grateful that we can continue to read through this because we have to hear these words before we can listen, for heaven's sake. At least hear them. Let them go inside your brain. I don't know what you're going to do with them. That's between you and God. But our job here is at least try to get these words into your brain, and we'll see how it goes. While he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The first word I want to cover is covered. How about that? Pleiades in Greek means full. It can mean full in a positive sense. In Luke, it means full of the Spirit. In chapter 4, verse 1, it can mean full of faith. It can mean full of grace. It can also mean, it appears in Acts chapter 6, you who are full of all deceit, all pleiades, full of deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? 
it's an interesting usage in Acts because it obviously relates to this idea of being covered with disease. So it can be positive or negative. Are you full of the teaching, the instruction, the grace, the Spirit of God, or are you infected? It corresponds in the Septuagint to this word in Hebrew, malay, which is also an Arabic word, to be full or to fill, mela, to fill. Again, here's an example from the prophets. In Isaiah, for example, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are maleu. They are covered with blood. Something can be covered. It can be full. It can be infected in a negative or a positive way. And obviously here in this example, Richard, it's infected. It's unclean. It's covered with leprosy. So this usage, this context, this background reflects what you were saying. Obviously, it's ultimately here, there's an interconnection with Leviticus. We're talking about someone who needs to atone, right? They're not full of grace. The instruction is not at work in them. If they have at some point received God's instruction, they're not walking according to it at this point. Something is lacking, and that's why they're covered with this infection, this leprosy. The other term that jumped out at me here, Richard, in this verse is the word implored. It makes sense. If you if you are a person who is covered with an infection, why wouldn't you want to implore him? And the word, of course, in Greek is deome, which means to ask or to pray or to beg. But in Hebrew, it's striking because it's not the first time that we've come across this word. We talked about it when we talked about the name Hanna in Arabic. Hanan in Hebrew means to show or to have or to implore the favor of. And again, it's the Arabic Hanna, which means grace. You implore, you ask. So he again sent the captain of a third, 50 with his 50. When the third captain of the 50 went up, he came and bowed down on his knees in this example, before Elijah and begged, Yithanen. He begged him and said to him, O man of God, please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. This is an example from Two Kings Rich, where Ahaziah fails in his quest to seek healing from a specific Baal, you know, who in popular culture they call Baal-zebub because of the New Testament. It's the Baal-zebub, and instead implores favor from the Lord's prophet, Elijah. Now, whether or not the Lord will heed the intercession of Elijah is a different question from a different text. Whether or not the third time is a charm for someone who was asking favors from the wrong deity the first two times around. But it's interesting, the usage of this term in the Old Testament. So you are imploring, you are asking for the grace that is lacking from the one who is full, not of grace, which is one possible usage of fullness, but is full of infection. So the question here is, how do we deal with this uncleanness, this infection, so that instead of being full of deceit and lies, which is the situation later in Acts, or infection here, were filled up with God's instruction, his Torah. 
when Peter is full of wonder, he says, go away from me because I'm a sinner. Here, the leper implores Jesus to make him clean. Could Peter have said, Jesus, take away my sin, atone for my sin, something like this, imploring Jesus to make him clean? Because here it seems to have worked. The leper says to Jesus, if you want, you can make me clean. He, of course, doesn't tell Jesus what to do, but he said, if it's your desire, this is a possibility. Not making any assumptions. In spite of the leprosy that he's experiencing, he's acting correctly here, which is to bow down at his feet and ask and say, if you want. We have the same word for falling. We have pipto, and then we have prospipto, which is falling to for Peter, where this is just plain pipto, just falling on his face. And he also calls him Kyrie, just like Peter does. The reaction to seeing, to encountering Jesus is important. When Simon Peter confronted him, he said, Epistatis, okay, I'll do what you tell me to do. But then recognizing that Jesus could cleanse him of his sin, he couldn't see. This leper, he never calls him Epistatis, he only calls him the Kyrios, and he asks him, if you want, you could do this without telling him what to do, still falling on his face. He doesn't grab Jesus's knees. Maybe this is out of respect for having leprosy. I don't know. But I'm reading this leper as having more respect as Simon Peter in this way, because he understands Jesus's authority and his power to cleanse him, as opposed to Simon Peter only thinking he's the master of the fish. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing to be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy cleansed him. Here, Rich, your comment about the importance of the books of Moses jumps out at me because this word stretched is clearly, to my ears, a reference to Exodus. Ectino appears elsewhere in Luke, and I'll come to that in a minute, but it corresponds to the word nata, which in both Arabic and Hebrew, it means stretch, spread, and lengthen. It's the same word in Arabic. Nata means to extend, to stretch out. And of course, anyone who pays attention and practically any of the Christian traditions, certainly in Islam, would be familiar with this text. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out netot, my hand on Egypt, and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. That's Exodus chapter 7, verse 5. It's classic. And that word corresponds to, as I said, ectino. It appears here in Luke chapter 5, but also in Luke chapter 22, verse 53. But there it doesn't refer to healing. In Exodus, it's the might of the Lord to rescue. In Luke chapter 5, it's the power of the Lord to heal. But later in Luke 22, it refers to the power of darkness. It's kind of like the empire strikes back against the Lord. The Lord rescues Israel, and now the empire is going to do the same thing against the Lord's Messiah. While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not stretch out your hands. And it's the same verb in Greek, ektino, on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours, implying that now you're going to stretch out your hands to harm me, even though my father stretched out his right hand to help you. And I stretched out my hand to heal you. 
So we're seeing again and again in these different terms and their usage, whether it's filling or stretching out the hand, it can function positively or negatively. In each case, if it's God who does the filling, it functions for his purpose, which is unto instruction. If it's God who stretches out his hand, it functions for his purpose unto the preservation of his honor, which might be to wipe us out or to protect us. That's always a question. But you see my point, Richard. We can't pin these terms down as positive or negative. Because remember, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, which is a great example, to be filled with the Spirit could be a dig, because you could be puffed up with arrogance when you're filled. So we have to hear these things carefully. The other word that stuck out for me was cleansed which is another technical term in the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, tahor, to be clean or pure. It's related to a very popular word in English, catharsis, catharizo, to make clean, to cleanse. You cleanse something, you empty it. It means to be clean, to be pure. It's actually an Islamic concept, tahara. It refers to purity or cleanliness, to purity in worship. Our most holy, most pure, most blessed and glorious lady, the Theotokos, our most pure. It's the same word. Now, this is where, Richard, we come to the connection with Leviticus that you were alluding to earlier, or one connection with Leviticus. The priest shall look at him again on the seventh day. And if the infection has faded and the mark has not spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only a scab, and he shall wash his clothes and be clean. Tahar, it's the same root. So, again, there is a Greek word here, which is katharizo, which is to make clean. But the Septuagint, which Luke is reading, renders this particular word, catharsis, as tahor, the same root, this Hebrew root, this triliteral, which is also functional in Arabic, and creates this interesting connection with this technical purity or cleaning in the Hebrew, which is a text in Leviticus that Luke is clearly referring to, because we're dealing with ritual purity around skin infections. As the priest, cultically, in a tribal setting, going to great lengths to make every effort possible not to exclude the one who has a dangerous infection. Why would you keep inspecting the skin of somebody who could make you as the priest sick? People usually hear these texts in a negative way as though you're being obsessive about a sick person, but that's incorrect. Look at how people treated people with AIDS in this country. We treated them like they had the bubonic plague. Whereas in Leviticus, the priest is instructed to keep taking every opportunity and every chance to inspect, to make sure that you don't throw this person away. This is what's going on in the New Testament. Jesus is taking every chance to purify 
not to throw away the one who has the infection. In Leviticus 14, there's a long chapter actually about how this works. The priest is doing all this preparation work for the one who is sick and is continuing to visit the persons. That is really important. I appreciated you bringing up the parallel with the AIDS epidemic because at the same time, then there were a lot of gay men who were spending a lot of time taking care of their friends who had nobody to take care of them because literally no one would touch them. Nurses wouldn't touch them. They couldn't go to a hospital. They wouldn't be admitted. And so they had to be taken care of at home. There were those who were always willing to do that. We have stories from the Roman Empire as well, where we had saints who, when there was a plague, would stay in town in order to take care of those people. You know, a lot of times we make fun of the way that certain societies take care of their sick, you know, through certain rituals that don't have anything to do with microbes and they ignore science. And, you know, we make fun of these things. But the point that's the most important is that you have a human being coming in contact with another human being, touching that human being with compassion. You can give a person so many shots, but to show the person some compassion whether they live or die, it's going to help. The shot may do nothing other than give you a pain in your butt, literally. So in this section of 14, the priest is performing these rituals because they're sacrifices and they are the hatat. They are the sin offering among others. Why is the priest giving a sin offering? Because the beauty of scripture is it takes every phenomenon and reminds you that you're not in charge. Only the Lord is in charge. And your dependence on anything besides the Lord is your rebellion. It is your chata, it is your sin. You perform this ritual to remind yourself that it is the Lord who's in charge. And as you said here in this section, we have, you know, if we take this syntax in Greek, because it's clunky in English, but it's very common in Greek, which is having stretched out his arm he touched him. Stretching out his arm is precisely the phrase that we get in descriptions of the Exodus in Scripture. With his outstretched arm, the Lord saved the people. The Lord struck down Pharaoh. Whatever the Lord did, that means the Lord was flexing his muscle. So maybe it would sound better if he said, as Jesus flexed his muscle, he touched the leper. But when Jesus flexes his muscle, he's only showing you the training regimen that was given to him by his father. That's the only reason he's got the biceps he does, is because his father put him through his regime, and he had to follow his practice. All the shots he learned, he had to learn from his father. That's the reason why he had those muscles. So as Jesus stretched out his arm to show his muscles, he touched this man. He didn't stretch out his arm in compassion. That's not why the Lord stretches out his arm. The Lord stretches out his arm to show his strength. He might use his strength for compassion, as you said, Father, but he might use it also to judge. He might use it to smack you. And here he is using the Lord's strength for healing. And he says, I want, be clean. If you want to translate it directly, that's what it sounds like. I want, fellow, be cleansed. He ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. I referred to this, Rich, at the beginning of the program. Now we're coming down to it. 
there are two different terms. In this case, it makes sense to translate it differently. In the first case, parangelo is translated as ordered. In the second case, Moses commanded prostaso. They use a different word. Now, whether or not throughout the text they consistently translate parangelo as ordered and parastaso as commanded, I can't say. I haven't done a thorough word study rich of Luke, but at least here in this verse, it makes sense that they've done so. In the first case with Barangelo, in the Septuagint, it's linked to, again, the word for here, Shema, you know, Sama, Isma, Sama, which means he heard, which in some translations of the Greek in the Septuagint, for obvious reasons, corresponds to Akuo, obviously. We talked about this earlier in chapter five. But it can also, this is what I find really powerful here. And this is where the translators of the Septuagint, Father Paul talks about this all the time, Rich. The translators of the Septuagint were clever. It can also correspond to parangelo, which means to order or to summon, which means in the mentality of the text, there is a link between summoning and issuing an order and transmitting a message and hearing, which is embodied in the Greek parangelo. So it gets back to this idea, which is very Semitic. It's very Torahic that you hear a commandment and you practice it. You are to keep practicing it and you keep coming back to the priest, which is very much in the mentality of this mashal that we're hearing now in Luke. And then, of course, I mentioned already prostaso. Prostaso is to command or assign a task. In Hebrew, it's sawa, which is to give an order. In Arabic, wasa, which is to command, enjoin, or advise. So you have two words for command, but the first one stresses this link with hearing. The last point that I want to make is this expression in English, make an offering. Of course, the word in Greek is something that Eastern Christians should be very familiar with, especially if you're a baker. The word in Greek is prosphero. The root in Hebrew is karab, which doesn't mean offering necessarily. Remember, it's a triliteral. In some usages, it means come closer, approach, step up, but it also means offering because karab is also qurban. Anybody who goes to church knows what that is. Al-qurban al-muqaddas. It's the holy offering. It's the holy bread. It's the round loaf you take to church and give to the priest that he takes particles out of. Qarib means near or close. Qurban. It's the sacrifice or the offering. So that's the terminology that's being used in Luke. Now, Luke is not talking about church bread. You took the words out of the Old Testament you took the words out of Luke and you used them for another purpose. So don't play games and say, oh, Luke is talking about the liturgy. He's not. You took his words because you heard them in Scripture. You said, oh, let's use them this way by extension. Fine. But understand where this terminology comes from. You come closer, you approach, you come forward. And Christ is saying, I made you clean. Now you may approach. 
because I made you clean. You go and approach the priest, as it says in Leviticus, and show him he'll see that there are no spots on you because I made you clean. So you go to the meeting place to hear the instruction, to make a witness for the gospel. In the Septuagint, often the martyrion is rendered as moed in Hebrew, which is the place of the testimony. Go to that place. When a man offers yakrib, a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a special vow for a freewill offering of the herd or of the flock, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it, which is Leviticus 22, verse 21. There's no defect in you. You're being offered as a witness, a martyr, so that my teaching may be proclaimed. So go forward. It's like I tell the altar boys at church, Rich, if the priest tells you to stand here, don't be shy. You push everyone aside. Step up. This fake Western humility will be the downfall of everyone. You were assigned and you were told to step forward to make the offering. When you talked about this difference between command and order, if we look at the etymology of the first one, paringilen, it comes from the root angelos, which is the message. When Jesus is ordering the leper, it's giving him this message. There's a message from me, para angelos. He gives him a message from himself saying, this is what you need to do. Jesus is very consistent with Torah because you go through all these sacrifices so that the person is cleansed, but once they're cleansed, then you have an offering that you have to give. The fact that he's cleansed doesn't mean, okay, now you're off the hook. It means, no, we took care of the first part, and then you do the second part. But what's the first part? The first part is making the offering, making the offering in faith, trusting in the Lord that the Lord's will is going to be done. The Lord's will was done, which he said in one word, thelo, I want, I wish, I will. And so then he did it. He cleansed him. So with that cleansing, now he has to go and fulfill this. But testimony unto them, to them, aftis, what is the testimony of? The testimony is that God cleansed him. You have to make it clear to the community that God cleansed you, so now you do this thing. I mean, that's one of the reasons why you do this, is because you want to welcome him back into the broader community. It's a ceremony. In the same way you have a marriage ceremony that introduces this new family to the community, you have this healing ceremony to reintroduce this formerly sick person, now healthy person, back into the community so he can live his full life in the community. That's why you have these rituals as a martirias to testify to the community that this is now the reality we're living according to. The reality we're now living according to is that this person who was a leper is now a former leper. He's now cleansed. The testimony is likewise to the commandment of Moses. What's the testimony? That Jesus is not undermining the Torah of Moses. He's following the Torah of Moses. So since he's following the Torah of Moses, go and make it clear to everybody, I am not here among you in one of the cities, as we saw in Greek in the beginning, to undermine Moses. I'm not here starting my own religion. I'm here on behalf of the person who spoke to Moses on the mountain. I am a witness to what my father spoke to Moses, 
And I expect you, with this message I'm passing along to you, to continue this testimony. The strength of the outstretched hand comes from the one who spoke to Moses. You need to be a martyria. You have to show your testimony of both the outstretched hand through your obedience of this law, not because I'm saying it, but because Moses told us. Moses, our teacher, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses is the one who taught us, and Jesus is here to make sure that this message continues on. So the leper is now cleansed because he received the strength of the outstretched arm, the mercy of the will of the Father, and the cleansing, and he now has a job to do, which is the charge of testifying to the functionality of Torah, continue to listen to it, continue to follow it, because now it's judgment time. We all have a duty to listen. So unlike Peter, who said, go away from me and let me be my sinful self, the leper now is given free of charge this grace, which he must take with a charge to be a martyr, to be a witness to what God spoke. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.